Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. It's great to be with you guys. Um, it's, it feels like it's been a minute, but I'm back here in a couple weeks as well, so it won't be so long next time. Um, well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Benji, and it's a privilege to get to be here and getting to share the Word of God with you today. Um, i tell you what, before I dive in, why don't you take out your Bible if you have one. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. They're in the back. Just let us know. It's free. Uh, we just believe that this library of books called the Bible, the scriptures, is God's primary way of connecting with us and speaking to us. And it is our job to approach this in a way that we can receive from it. And that's partly our role. It's partly the Holy Spirit's. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and pray. And then we're going to dive into the message today. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, what a gift the scriptures are. Lord, thank you for the words that you wrote to the church in Ephesus still have so much for us today. Lord, I pray that the things we walked in this room with, caring from the weak, the concerns or the worry or the stress, or we just lay it down before you. Jesus, I ask that at the end of our time together that you would become more central to our church and more central to our lives. Lord, we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, we have been going through a series through the book of Ephesians, and Caitlin did a phenomenal job last week. Uh, I got to listen to the recording, and Ephesians chapter 2, which we're in, the first 10 verses are this masterful, poetic, theologically dense description of what Jesus has done for you. And it follows this format, this format that presents a problem, and it talks about how we are dead in our sins, and we were far from God, and then it presents a solution that... But God, being rich in love, uh, made us alive with Christ. He right, tells us what Jesus did. And, and then at, after the solution, it gives us a vision. This is who we are as a result of us becoming alive with, with Christ. Those are the first 10 verses. The next 10 verses do the exact same thing. They present a problem. They talk about a solution that Jesus brings. And then it tells us a vision as that we live in result of it. But the difference is this. The first 10 verses talk about our spiritual problem, our need to reconcile with God. Our, the second passage doesn't talk about a spiritual problem. It talks about a social problem. It talks about how we, uh, us as humanity, have been torn apart. And that the same way the blood of Jesus connects us with the Father again, the blood of Jesus connects us with each other again. And so just a little bit of a, a framework, but they, they literally parallel each other, the wording and the cadence. And so we're going to move from kind of this spiritual, vertical problem that it solves to now a horizontal social problem that Paul begins to address with the same solution. It's with Jesus and his blood. 
And so Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 11. It says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body, by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So this these verses talk about a problem in that we are far away and that we have a dividing wall of hostility among us. Secondly, it talks about a solution, that we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, which has given us peace. And lastly, he gives us this vision, which he calls one new humanity, which is another way of calling us the church. And so I want to begin with talking about the problem because... When you read this passage, the last passage, if you like had a Bible, it's probably really easy to underline a lot of it. It's so, it feels so like it's hitting us. And then it's just starts talking about like Gentiles and Jews and uncircumcised and circumcised. And it's just, you kinda, it just kind of loses us a little bit. Because chances are you didn't wake up this morning really concerned with what the Jew-Gentile ratio was going to be at Light Church this morning, right? You're probably not like, oh my gosh. I don't know, might be some uncircumcised people at church today. <laughs> and if that is a concern for you, then this passage probably speaks very directly to you. But let me give you some context here, because the next two chapters, Paul's going to keep hitting this problem, which was a massive stumbling block for the ancient church. And so a little bit of context here. Gentile just means you're non-Jewish. And when God begins to interact with humanity, he does it largely in the beginning of the Bible, trying to solve the, the problem with all of humanity. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, he changes tactics. He chooses a man, and out of that man develops a family, turns into a tribe, and eventually a nation. And in Genesis 12, it says that the goal of these people is to be set apart for God for the, for the sake of blessing others, blessing the rest of the world. But strangely, what happened is that they really grabbed a hold to, like, we need to separate thing, but they kind of lost, lost sight of for the sake of blessing the rest of the world. And so by the time Jesus comes around hundreds of years later, the Jewish people who have undergone a really intense cycle of oppression have really taken it upon themselves to recover their sense of separateness, their sense of separation from the world. 
And this is where we get groups like the Pharisees. It's where we get the sense of like the reason we're in trouble is we didn't keep ourselves holy enough. So you can imagine Jesus shows up as a Jew, lives a very Jewish life, and 99.9% of his early followers are Jewish. And it was a shock to everyone that after Jesus ascends up to heaven and the Spirit is poured out, it's not just poured out on Jews, but on Gentiles as well. This would have been absolutely, like, uh, mind-bending for you. That God's redemptive plan is actually outside of the Jewish people as well. So there becomes this really heated theological debate, and it goes something like this. How Jewish do you have to be to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus? And this leads to a full-on council in Jerusalem where all of the early church fathers come together and they debate this issue of how Jewish do you have to be to be a follower of Jesus? Well, although they settled some things and essentially they said, all, all we're asking you to do is not eat food sacrificed to idols, don't participate in fornication, and serve the poor. Though That was essentially how Jewish you had to be to be a follower of Jesus. But word travels slowly when you don't have social media and you don't have internet. And so almost every one of Paul's letters, he's addressing this problem. He's addressing this, this stumbling block. And so he calls this idea of this thing of, of Jews and Gentiles who where they were calling the Gentiles the uncircumcised. They, it says they called themselves the circumcision, which they should come up with a better name. If they're like just trying to get people part of their club, you know, if you're planting a church, we're circumcision church, you know, like there's, there's other ways you could drop people in, but for whatever reason, that's what they chose to call themselves. When Paul's writing them, he says that one of the reasons Jesus came was to destroy the dividing wall of hostility between these two groups. And there's really two interpretations of what that means. The first one is a literal translation. There is a stone, a first century limestone that they found that came from the temple. I think we have a picture of this. You can literally go see it in a museum today. And it reads this. No stranger is to enter within the balustrade around the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. That stone, you can't really see it, was, pl was plastered on that outer wall around the temple, which separated the, the hall of the Gentiles or the court of the Gentiles and the holy place where the Jews were allowed to enter into. So one translation is that he's literally saying that wall is gone. There is no more separation, that Jesus took care of that. The other translation, or the other interpretation of this passage, is that this dividing wall of hostility is not the literal thing, but it's talking about the law itself. The thing that really made you Jewish or not was your obedience to the Torah, the, the 613 laws found within it. And it says that Jesus came to fulfill it, and by fulfilling it, destroyed it. It's fascinating. If you ever read through the book of Matthew, read the life of Jesus as a retelling of Israel's story. So when he goes down to Egypt as a little boy, the people of Israel went down to Egypt. When Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, it's a retelling of Israel going to the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus' life is a retelling of Israel's story, but rather than him failing, 
at their fidelity to God, Jesus succeeds in his faithfulness to the Father. And so by doing that, he destroys the, this, this wall, this hostility, not just between us and God, but here's what Paul's trying to get it. It's between us. We no longer have a dividing wall of hostility because of the finished work of Jesus. Now, like I said, this is a little bit of a problem as a pastor 2,000 years later because we're not really concerned with that dividing wall. So, a couple of questions I want to ask you. What, is, what are the functions of a dividing wall? Three things. Number one, they give us a sense of safety. Dividing walls give us a sense of belonging. And lastly, dividing walls give us a sense of identity. So, this is what I want to do. What are the things within the church? Now, clarification. This is not talking about division between the church and culture. It's literally addressing division within the church. What are dividing walls within the church that give us a sense of safety, belonging, and identity that are not Jesus? Now, in this passage, there are four interesting Greek words that I wanted to point out here that were causation of division for the early church. The first one is ethne, which means is the word Gentiles, where we get our word ethnic or ethnicity from. The second word is politeia, which is the word citizenship, which is where we get our word what? Politics. Find that fascinating. Uh, Zenoi is the next one. We get our phrase xenophobia from. It means strangers. Atheoi, which is where we get our word atheists from. God, these were all some of the language that Paul's using to talk about the division in the early church. <laughs> this has no relevance to today um, whatsoever. So I began to start thinking this week is as a pastor, in my conversations, when I'm sitting down for coffee with people and the interactions I have, what are some of the dividing walls I see continuing to show up within our context of church in the West, in America? And it, just a few thoughts. Number one is that when people come to church, one of the dividing walls they have to wrestle through is their political convictions, their economic status, their theological understanding around scripture, sexuality, women in leadership, its cultural preferences. That whether we know it or not, we show up to church with a certain greater framework of like, well, I wonder what they think about this. And we choose churches by it, and we leave churches by these dividing walls. And so when, when Paul's addressing this 2,000-year-old problem, we can't just be so early, be so like dismissive of like, well, I'm glad we figured that out. This is still happening today. As a matter of fact, this week, The Atlantic came out with an article literally titled, How Politics Poisoned the Evangelical Church. With a subline, the movement's been 40 years at war with secular America. Now it is at war with itself. This is the Atlantic, right? This is not a Christian publication. From the outside looking in, they're saying, the church used to be at war with secular culture. They're at war with themselves now. One of the excerpts from it says, the nation's largest denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, is bleeding members because of ferocious infighting over race relations, women serving in leadership, accountability for sexual misconduct, and other issues. The United Methodist Church, America's second largest denomination, is headed toward imminent divorce over irre irreconcilable social and ideological divisions. 
Smaller denominations are losing affiliate churches as pastors and congregations break from their leadership over many of the same cultural flashpoints, choosing independence over associating with those who do not hold their views. And so this is, this is, this is happening not just like this kind of undercurrent. The world is watching. The world is watching division that is taking place within the church, and it's costing the testimony of Jesus. This is something that we actually have to pay um, largely a sense of attention to. Dr. Gary Bashirs is one of my professors, has this really helpful theological framework, and he says these four things. You have to figure out what's to die for, what's to divide for, what's to debate for, and what's to decide for. Uh, to die for, what we're going to see in this passage is things like the blood of Jesus. Like, this is the stuff that, like, the church needs to be saying, this, we can't separate from this. The second thing that we need to do is say, well, what are the things we're going to defi- divide for? The church is actually going to, to do that. Then the next category is what do we need to debate for? And then lastly, what do we decide for? Here's my concern. Especially over the past three years, things that the church historically has debated for and decided for, we have shoved up into the divide for category. And we have largely lowered the things that the church used to die for into the divide for. So everything is landing in the divide for category. And that's not a helpful way to function in a theological sense. And so we need to ask ourselves, what are those things? And again, we don't have the scope of today's message to be able to go through every single one of those points. But our, our idea is that, and what Paul is saying here, is that the thing, and please hear this, the thing that unifies us must be greater than the things that divide us. The thing that unifies us, according to him, is the peace that has been brought by the blood of Jesus. Full stop. The blood of Jesus has to be the thing that defines us more than anything that could ever divide us. Charles Spurgeon says, atonement by the blood of Jesus is not an arm of Christian truth. It is the heart of it. It has to be the centerpiece. So verse 13 It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. By the way, that word peace is going to be used four times in a very short amount of time. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. It's the cross of Jesus. This is the thing we need to rally around. It's the center of gravity for us. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, peace to those who are near, Gentiles and Jews, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. I love what A.W. Tozer uses this analogy. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they trying to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. And so he gives this analogy. 
So when you tune a piano before, like cool apps and things like that, you had like a tuning fork, right? And you tune that piano to it, and it takes an art form. But the point is, like, if you tune 100 pianos to that one tuning fork, they would all be in unison. But if you tuned a piano with a tuning fork, and then the next piano to that piano, and then the next piano to that piano, and then the next piano to that piano, by the time you got to the 100th piano, it would be completely out of tune from the first. And I think it's a really powerful analogy because as a culture, we are consistently looking for other people to tune our theological ideas and our devotion rather than Jesus. Because if we all tune our hearts and our convictions to Jesus and all of us decide to do that, what Tozer is saying is we will all be unified as a result of it. It's our focus, our refocus on Jesus truly being at the center of everything. Now, you might be listening to like, well, it seems like a really big deal to Paul, but like, is, it, is, it, is unity really that important? And I would say, not in my personal opinion, but in the Bibles, it's incredibly critical. So much so that when Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, says a prayer for us. Did you know that? Like Jesus literally prayed a specific prayer for those who would come after his disciples. Now listen to what he prays, because I got to be honest, if I was to guess what Jesus was going to pray for us, it would not be this. But this is it. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, talking about the 12 disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. This is us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you and I are, just you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. That's a high vision of unity. God's vision for unity in the church is marked by the Trinity. Not by tolerance, not by holding hands. The Trinity is the standard of unity that Jesus is praying for us. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Listen to this. Why is this so important for Jesus? That the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see, Jesus, he says, if they don't get this unity thing, the world won't know that you sent me. If they don't get this unity thing, they won't know how much I love them. And somehow, in Jesus' mind, unity is attached to evangelism. It's attached to mission. It's attached to kingdom advancement. That if there isn't unity, that this thing doesn't move forward, which makes me think that if this is Jesus' primary prayer for us, and the primary agenda of the enemy is division. And you wouldn't really think about like the enemies just like thinking about how to divide, but this is why I think he's so after division within the church, within marriages, within family, society, because if he can get us divided, it doesn't only make life harder for us, it weakens the testimony of Jesus. And so we have to, as a church, and I know we are a sliver compared to the Big C Church, but for our family here, our community here, this is something that's not like an offshoot thing. Like, yeah, I suppose we should like get along and be unified. No, no, no. This, this is central. We have to be unified because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, I, I, I recognize that statement comes with a lot of questions. What happens if someone doesn't want to be unified? 
What happens if someone doesn't want to be reconciled? What happens if there's a real division? And I think when Paul writes to the Romans, he addresses this. He says this, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That word peace is the same word that's used in Ephesians chapter 2. Meaning, you can't control other people's reactions, right? You can't, like, just arm wrestle someone towards unity. Like, you, Jesus said it. You have to like me. But it says, as far as it is concerned with you, work towards peace, not with the ones you like, not with the people who vote like you, not the people who think like you, with everyone. You work towards peace as far as it is concerned with you. And the question is, what, what happens? If, if that was our commitment as followers of Jesus, we want to see the dividing wall of hostility removed. Unity, that it looks like the Trinity flourishing within the, within the center of our church. What would happen? And he goes on and he starts giving a vision. He says, we would look like the church. We would look like what he says here in verse 15. That his purpose, the purpose of what? Of the cross, of his blood that was shed was to create in himself, and I love this language, one new humanity. His, his vision for the church isn't a group you attend on Sunday. It is an entirely different human experience altogether. He says we're he's creating in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death within, that, within us, within the church, hostility. That he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both now have access to the Father in one spirit. What a high view of the church. That the church is the result of a unified people. That the cross is to remove the dividing wall. Now, this is not the first time that Paul talks about the church. He talks about it in the previous chapter and in the following chapter. And I want to point out Paul's consistent high view of the church. Look at what he says about it in chapter 1, verse 22. He says, And God placed all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is what? It's his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church, in Paul's imagination, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the fullness of Jesus that fills everything in every way. Did you think, did you think about that? When you leave this place, when we leave this place, right? When we go get gelato down the street, or go eat Smashburger, or we go take our kids to school the next day, or show up at our jobs. The vision is that we are actually the fullness of Jesus inhabiting all of those spaces. In the next chapter, in chapter 3, it says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, so the full, expansive wisdom of God, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. So this isn't just for us to show the world who Jesus is. It's actually to show the spiritual realm who Jesus is. So when we live as the church, it affects the world and the spiritual realm in an incredible kind of way. It, what, I mean, what does it look like for us to live the fullness of Jesus, to live into that kind of life? 
Now, before we move into answering that, like what's a vision for the future church? I, I do want to address that when we talk about the church being unified and recovering its beautiful God-given dignity, um, I recognize that within this room there are people that have been hurt by the church. A matter of fact, it seems to be an increasing issue. It's always been an issue. But it seems to have an increased sense of prevalence in our culture that church hurt seems to be something that has almost gained a sense of momentum that this desire to call out, whether it's podcasts or documentaries or Twitter feeds, that there is no shortage of a, of a belittled vision of the church because of church hurt, which kind of lasts, we have, we're kind of stuck between this tough spot because the Bible gives a really high vision for the church. Yet, there are many people who have been hurt. And so what do we do? Do we lower the vision of church to meet reality? Do we dismiss people's hurt and pain, say, oh, it, doesn't, it wasn't that bad? Like, don't talk bad about the church. And I think the answer is, if, is right here in the text. I think when we have a high view of the church, it calls her to, her, to the fullness of who she was always supposed to be. And when she's not, she meaning the church, it reminds us that although she is the bride of Christ, she is not in and of herself the Christ. So a couple of just practical things. Number one, if you've been hurt by the church, authentically, for, for whatever this means, from the bottom of my heart, I am deeply sorry. I, I recognize that there are significant wounds that have been laid upon souls because of people who should have been operating spiritual authority. That's, God does not condone that. That's not part of his vision. And our hope is that this would be a place of healing. This would be a place where you could become and be honest about those things. But I want to speak to the opposite end. I don't know if the solution for church hurt is slander or tearing down the church or removing yourself from the church. One of kind of the popular language right now is divorcing yourself from the church. Um, I recognize the amount of pain it would have to take for someone to use that language, but I would just encourage you, maybe think about different language because divorcing yourself from the bride of Christ is an interesting way to frame something because Jesus has never chosen to divorce himself from her. So if Jesus remains faithful to his bride, so should we. And in so doing that, the greatest solution for diminishing church hurt is not strategies or programs. It's becoming more like Jesus, right? When the church becomes like Jesus, hurt goes down, flourishing goes up. And I recognize that because of the, the context of this room in our church, we're filled with broken people. So inevitably, like, you will get hurt here as well. So if you're, like, just going on turn looking for the perfect church where you won't get to hurt, I'm sorry, it's not it. It's like, we're not it. We will hurt you because we're people. But what I wanted to promise to you is that as a church, we are committed to and are fully invested into becoming more like Jesus. And that's not at an institutional level. It's at an individual, collective level. We, you and me, have to choose 
I'm following Jesus and becoming more like him. That is the only way that renewal can sweep across our church and any church is as a recommitment towards Jesus. I love what Bonhoeffer wrote after his time in Finkenwald. As he's, Thanks for listening to the Light Church to Podcast. The church this sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. His, we pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. Renewal of the for more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. has in common with the old and uncompromising allegiance to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. It is high time men and women banded together to do this. So I want to give you, um, a few years back, we did a, a series called Future Church. Many of you guys are new in this room to our community, so you wouldn't have been there for that. You're welcome to go back and listen to it. We did it in collaboration with Park Hill Church and Bridgetown and Reality San Francisco and a few other churches. And in this series, we talked about eight different themes that we believe are central to renewing a sense of vision for the church moving forward here in the West. And so I just want to read these to you guys. Number one is that we'd be a community of tight-knit, loving relationships in a culture of individualism and isolation. And in short, we choose to be a new type of family, right? We choose adoption. We choose to, to love one another as brothers and sisters, Secondly, that we'd be a community of orthodoxy in a culture of ideological idolatry, meaning that we hold true to a faith that's more than just a hundred years old, but it's thousands of years old, that's rooted in Scripture. Thirdly, that we are a community of holiness in a culture of moral relativism, meaning that our ethic is not shaped by the culture that we are in, but by the Scriptures that we have been given, and we live accordingly to that by the Spirit of God. Fourthly, that we are a community of contribution in a culture of careerism, right? That we live generously. We look at money differently because we, this is not something we own because everything is owned by the Lord. And so we live in a different type of economy. Next, that we are a community of peace in a culture of fear. That we have a different barometer of reality and hope and peace. Number six, that we are a community of peacemakers in a culture of polarization, largely what the sermon is talking about. We choose a different level of unity, not because of our differences, but because of what, of what unifies us. Next, that we are a community of rest in a culture of exhaustion. We practice Sabbath. We let go of the need that we are what we produce. And number eight, that we are a community of justice and mercy in a culture of brokenness. So we practice simplicity and generosity towards the poor and those who are hurting. That is a, again, it's not exhaustive, but just to give you a little snippet of our hope of what we see the church becoming and living into. Um, this, a lot of you guys already know this, but two days ago, Tim Keller, who's a pastor and Christian thinker from New York, passed away and is one of the, uh, it has caused a collective grief in the Christian community because of the influence he's had, not only on pastors, but on, on, on largely the kind of the Christian formation in America. And when he was diagnosed three years ago with pancreatic cancer, he set out to write three books. He wrote a book on Easter, on forgiveness, and then he wrote a book on, on the church reaching the West again. And in that last book reaching the West again, 
uh, he wrote down what he believes are the three things needed for the church to live into this renewed calling. And um, it was brought to my attention again as I was writing this sermon. I felt like it was a good way for us as we get, to con- get ready to conclude this message. Um, what, is, what is needed for us to have this type of vision recovered and renewed for our church? And this was his three things. Number one, the church needs a radical recommitment to Jesus as Lord. This may sound simple, but we desperately need Jesus not sitting shotgun in the vehicle of the church, but driving it. He's our controller and our Lord. Secondly, that we need a radical recommitment to Jesus as the way. That we don't only profess him as Lord, we live in the rhythm and habit and discipline that Jesus showed us to live. And lastly, we need a sweeping renewal of the Holy Spirit. And um, next week, I would encourage you, come, bring a friend. It's Pentecost Sunday. It's the birthday of the church. And we're going to be talking about the last few verses of chapter 2 where it talks about this, the finished vision of the church is that we actually become a temple of the Holy Spirit. We need the work of the Spirit to come and indwell in this space and fill us and move us and sweep over us. And so this is what I would like for us to do. I would like for us today as a church to recommit ourselves. I'm doing this in Encinitas as well. To recommit ourselves not to be defined by what defines us, but be defined by what unifies us, namely the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that as we do that, a recommitment to live in the way of Jesus with the help and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So would you stand to your feet with me? I would like to pray uh, a passage of Scripture. This is in Romans 12, 9 through 18. And um, I'm going to kind of reword it so it turns it into a kind of a collective prayer. And I would encourage you, I think it'll be on the screen, uh, but more important than reading it, would you pray along with me in your own heart that this would become our vision and our hope for what the church should become as we draw closer to Jesus. So Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help that love would be sincere. God, help us to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be devoted to one another in love, that we'd honor one another above ourselves, never lacking in zeal, but keeping up our spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Help us, Jesus, be joyful in hope, to be patient in affliction, and to be faithful in prayer. Lord, I pray that we'd share with the Lord's people who are in need, that we'd practice hospitality, that we'd bless those who persecute us and bless and do not curse. Lord, I pray that we rejoice with those who are rejoicing and that we would mourn with those who mourn. God, that we live in harmony with one another. Lord, protect us from being proud and help us be willing to associate with people of low position. Help us to not be conceited. Lord, I pray that you would not allow us to repay anyone evil for evil, but that we would be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And Lord, when it is possible, as far as it depends on us, would we live at peace with everyone? Lord, we ask for this in the powerful and unifying work of Jesus Christ. With the blood of Jesus, 
unify our church and not only our church. I just pray for our region. I pray for San Diego. I pray that our relationship as Light Church to other churches would be unified for our commonality around Jesus. I pray you'd fill us now, Spirit of God. I pray for any division that marks this church in this room, that it would just dissipate in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that division that's happening within marriages, within homes, within our own well-being and our own self. Lord, I pray for peace in Jesus' name. Lord, any plan or assignment of the enemy, Lord God, that it was is bent on division, Lord, I pray, Jesus, now that you would come and you bring healing, Lord. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.